chapter 2, please. John chapter 2 is where we'll be looking at this morning. If you don't have one, just please listen in. My name's Ray Wilson. Um, as was mentioned earlier, Lee is preaching in the city at All Nations Church this morning and I've uh, come along to open up God's word. As we come to his word, let's pray particularly for his enlightenment. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that this is your word of truth about the word, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would open it up to us by your spirit now, that we might be nourished even as we've been nourished in uh, your body and blood we contemplate now more of what that means for our lives. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 2 from verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to excuse me, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. And this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And you might like to follow along. There's a bit of an outline there and there's opportunity to maybe write some notes on the next page too. Let's have a look at this. Make America great again. Where have we heard that recently? Or we show our age, you show your age and I show mine, if we can answer whose was the campaign slogan, it's time. And we give it away a little more if we give the hint, little Patty sang the song. <laughs> that was a long time ago, wasn't it? That was Gough Whitlam's campaign in 72. You know, when you start a campaign of some kind, you make the first thing, you say and do powerfully communicate what you're on about. And we still do that today. Businesses do it, all sorts. When you're wanting to get a church web page designed, you want the home page to get across really key message about our Lord, about our church and about our mission. It's got to be there up front, big time, shows out, stands out. And it's the same in politics as obviously we come across all the time. And in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, Jesus was starting his active ministry. 
Verse 11 says this was a sign and it showed, it manifested his glory. Why is it a sign? What's going on here? Well, it's obviously a way of Jesus telling people this is what I am about, this is who I am. Uh, But why would Jesus do this as his first sign? There's no one dying. There's, there aren't 5,000 people running out of food. There's no one sick. There's no one sinking under the waves. You know, those are the dramatic things. Surely they would get people's attention much more than this. He takes a wedding party that's about to end in embarrassment and he makes it huge bigger than anyone. This would have been talked about in this village for a long time afterwards. Wow, remember that one. And you've got to say, this is different. It's amazing. He's showing what he came to bring and how he's going to bring it. And that should provoke us to wonder, hmm, this is showing what he came to bring, huh? How's that so? So let's think for a moment. What did Jesus come to bring? How was this showing, manifesting his glory? Well, you just look through and you think about what you're facing here. It's obviously a different time, different culture, different way of doing things. There was a master of the banquet, as verse 9 mentions, or lord of the feast, depending upon your translation. We don't have anything quite like that in any of our wedding ceremonies today in our culture. It isn't really like a master of ceremonies. This bloke's job was to ensure that the party went well. So he's much more than an MC. And by Jesus not healing the sick, not raising the dead, not feeding the hungry, but by keeping a wedding party going really strong and stronger, by providing, say, 600 litres of the best wine, he's saying, I am the real Lord of the banquet. I am here to bring joy. It's my job to turn your life into a feast. And you think, oh, is that so special? And I think if we think like that, maybe we need to get into this a bit more. Let's think about it. This is the best wine. Our equivalent would be Grange Hermitage. You heard of that stuff? It's a pretty special drop. Uh, In my job, we were packing some before Christmas. And I tell you what, we put multiple layers of the heaviest bubble wrap around it because it's, you know, some of those bottles there, 1948 vintage, that's worth about six grand, one bottle. So, you know, you're going to treat this very carefully. But this is what Jesus comes to bring as Lord of the Feast. Do you begin to get the picture? He's talking about powerful sensations. Not just, oh, a lot of theological boxes to tick. Yeah, I know that. God's king. Yeah, Jesus is saviour. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, there's the Trinity, whatever that is. You know, it's not boxes to tick. It's a powerful, life-changing taste. After all, the Bible is full of powerful sensations like this. This is what Jesus says he comes to bring as Lord of the feast. It's all about taste. As verse 10 
highlights. Why does Psalm 34 say, taste and see that the Lord is good? Don't they already know? Don't we already know? Oh yeah, the Lord's good. Tick. Don't we know that? Sure we do, but he's saying, I want you to know it in a more powerful way. So he comes to bring powerful sensation into your life. He doesn't just say, in the kingdom of heaven we're going to have a feast. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's a, a nice idea, isn't it? He doesn't just say that. He says that the kingdom of heaven is a feast and I'm going to make it the best one, better than you can ever imagine. And here's the best wine as just a foretaste of glory. That's why he's, John's able to say Jesus manifested his glory in this. It's a foretaste of something much greater, just like we have in the Lord's Supper. It's a bit, it's just to get you looking for the better, the best, which is to come. That's why in the Old Testament you see statements about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob sitting down with people from the four corners of the earth and they're going to have a feast, a party if you like. Although I'm wary of using the word party because it's so abused in our culture. But it's the idea of the kingdom of heaven is what Isaiah says in Isaiah 25 which we read as a call to worship. Isaiah uses these words, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, there's a difference between believing that God is holy and gracious and having a real sense of the heart of the loveliness and beauty of our Lord. There's a difference. It's a bit like the rational belief that honey is sweet. Yep, honey is sweet. And then tasting it on your lips. Some beautiful jar of honey or one of the special honeys that we can get around here. Again, in my job, we have people calling us every couple of weeks wanting to export honey from here to all places around the world because it's special. And you taste it and you know it's special. That's what God is talking about, a rich sensation. That's what Jesus says, I come to bring. And what he's talking about here is taste and see that I am good. I want you to enjoy my sweetness. A pastor of an older time, Charles Spurgeon, preached a sermon on three words in the parable of the prodigal son. You might remember there's a part where the father welcomes home his son and the Bible says he kissed him. Those are Jesus' words. The father kissed his son. He kissed him. And the whole sermon is about the experience of the father's kiss. And at one point, Spurgeon puts it like this, some of us know what it is like to be too happy to live. The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions that we almost had to ask God to stop the delight for we were afraid that we could endure no more. We would have died for joy. I ask you today, do
do you know anything about that? Why? Why not? Do you understand, do you sense what Spurgeon is talking about here? Because this is what Jesus is talking about that he comes to bring. This is his calling card, if you like. He says, I'm the real Lord of the banquet. That's what I've come to bring and I want to come into and transform your life. Taste and see that I'm good. I'm better than anything you've experienced before. But then, of course, it begs another question. How does he bring this? And there's a key to understanding this passage. In verse 3, Mary tells Jesus, they've run, run out of wine. This could be very embarrassing in a village where things get remembered for a long time. And Jesus replies, you see it there in verse 4, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus' reply is actually pretty abrupt, isn't it? Whichever way you try and read that, I gentled it down a bit, you might jazz it up a bit, but it's pretty abrupt. He seems to be emotional responding to his mother. That's the way we might easily read that in our culture. We probably think he's saying, my hour is not yet come to do a miracle. I'm not re yet ready to take off my Clark Kent suit and to put on my Superman stuff. That's the way we would tend to read it because this is where superheroes get so many of their themes from. Actually, you think about it, there are a lot of those themes are straight from Scripture and the need for a saviour. Anyway, we might think it's saying that, but that can't be right. Why not? Because in the next minute or two, he turns around and does the miracle. So he can't be saying, oh no, it's not my time to do a miracle. Because the next minute he's going to do it and he knows that. So what's going on here? Well, think about this. Think about it. Get into their shoes or sandals. Is this a typical relationship between a mum and her adult son? Has Jesus not gotten past the way we act and react as ordinary humans? And if you think about that for a moment, you'll say, yeah, Jesus is way past ordinary human relationships and interactions. Way past it. So, we must go a bit further to get what's happening here. Here's the dynamic. Mary is saying, now dear... I remember the angels when you were born and I know you're not just here with a few of your mates at a wedding breakfast. You've got a big destiny. Oh, that's another theme in pop culture, isn't it? Without your destiny. Well, here's a bigger destiny than any destiny anyone can dream up today. Let me tell you. I remember the angels. I know you can do something about this. She knows that more is in play here than mere human relationships, the way we interact. And think about it a bit more. Is this the way Jesus replies? Mum, no, 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 it's not time. Oh, all right, I'll do it. Is that the way he's reacting here? 
I think not. Because if Jesus means that his time has not yet come to do a miracle, then when he does it, a minute later, he's just been handpecked, manipulated and cajoled. And I don't think that's Jesus. That's a very small Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible, if that's what you think. Please go and read a gospel and you'll see he would never be handpecked, manipulated or cajoled. It's not Jesus. We need to give him more credit than that. I'm sure that the God-man who's about to put up with all that he knows lies ahead of him. His mission, that he won't be manipulated like that. Later we'll see he sets his face like flint to go to the unimaginable suffering of the cross and nothing diverts him. He's like a laser beam. Nothing stops him. The wrath of hell doesn't even stop him. So do you think he's going to let his mother cause him to change his plans right here at the outset of his ministry? It can't be. And the key to this is that word hour in verse 4. My hour has not yet come. Every time that word is used in John's Gospel, it refers to the hour of his death. Let's see some examples. I'll just give three. John chapter 7, verse 30. So they were seeking, that's the Sanhedrin, to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one could arrest him because his hour had not yet come. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Finally, the hour had come. Every time John records it, that word hour is a loaded word. You can't just flippantly read it. So, Now can you see what's very interesting about this interaction with Mary. Mary says, they have no wine. And she obviously expects him to do something supernatural. And he says to her, it's not my hour to die. Huh? Jesus, you've changed the subject. She's talking about wine, you're talking about your death. What am I missing? Why the change of topic? Well... He seems, you think, to be missing Mary's point. But actually, what John's causing us to do, what Jesus is causing us to do, is to to be invited into his heart. John's inviting us into the preoccupation of Jesus as he starts his ministry. He knows what lies ahead. And he knows his mission is all about going to the cross and then rising and ascending into glory and pouring out his spirit. Right at the beginning, he knows what he's got to do, and it focuses on the cross. That's what it's about. Again, to set the scene properly, to think why this reply, realise that it was the groom's responsibility in this village to provide the wine. And this young groom and his family placed embarrassment at their lack. And to get it even more crystal clear, think about a wedding. When you're single and you go to someone else's wedding, what are you thinking about? When I'm at a wedding reception where I'm involved, um, I perform the wedding service, say, 
I'll often see single people staring off into space. And I wonder what's going on here. I don't think it takes too much imagination to work it out. They're probably thinking about their wedding. What they hope that they might enjoy one day. And most of us here, I can see, have been married. We've been married so long, we've probably forgotten what that's like. Um, And it's a bit difficult maybe to imagine it in quite the same way. But there's only one possible answer to Mary's comment that wine is needed. If Jesus is providing the wine, that's the groom's job and he's thinking of his wedding. What does it take for him to get to his wedding day? The marriage supper of the Lamb. He's thinking of the day when he sits down to drink the cup with his bride and of course he's the bridegroom. And what it takes is you get to the end of Revelation. The picture is of Jesus the King who is also the Lamb, the sacrificed Lamb, who is the bridegroom coming down out of glory for his bride, the church. And the same John who received the Revelation also wrote John chapter 2 in this Gospel. And he could see all of that. He has all of it in view. So when Mary implies that Jesus should get wine for the wedding, Jesus in effect replies, there's only one way I'm ever going to get wine for my wedding. I'm going to have to die. I'm going to have to die to get a bride for myself. I'm going to have to face the hour when I die to have a wedding feast for any bride. I'm not going to be able to experience this sort of wedding feast for myself until I'm dead. The only way for me to get wine into the lives of the people I love is to pour out my blood. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what's going on here. This is the dynamic. Now, as someone who performs weddings, I get to experience what I think even movie stars don't get to experience as much as I do. Movie stars get married, say, on average, what, six times? Something like that. Yet I've gotten to see this many more times. You're there, you're up the front and she's here and the music swells and wow, she's terrific. And you've got to say that the whole wedding paraphernalia that we have in our culture has been worked out for a long time and it works pretty well. No matter who it is, there's a look as the bride comes up the aisle. And everyone's going, wow, she's terrific. Whether she's a beauty queen or your next door neighbour's daughter who you've watched grow up, you say, she looks terrific. Isn't it great? Everyone's grinning. You get sore sore mouth by the end of the day. And Jesus is daring to say that no matter what you and I, no matter what we look like in reality, even someone as ugly in sin as me could be seen as the perfect bride, the wow factor. Jesus is effectively saying, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. Is it possible that Jesus actually feels like that when he sees you and that he's willing to die so that we can appear like that in his eyes and so that we can fall into his arms? You know, forget Mills and Boone. Again, they're just a cheap rip-off of the reality of what glory will be. It's just 
a sad, sad, faint picture, a shadow. Because what Jesus offers is the best. It's the best wine, the best relationship. That's the sensation. He came to bring this joyful feast and died to make us his bride. Yeah, blokes, even us, we're the bride. We don't have to get to wear the dress. If you'd like to get this joy into your life, if you'd like to know this sort of relationship with the Lord of the universe, then this text at least gives you some hints as to how you're going to become a Christian. First, admit that you've run out of anything to help yourself. This would not have happened unless Mary admitted, we're empty, the party's going to stop for disaster. It wouldn't have happened unless Mary came to Jesus and admitted, there's nothing left. Only you, Jesus, can fill the need. So, admit you're empty and hopeless and helpless. And secondly, take credit for what he's done. See how the bridegroom in the wedding, uh, in verse 10 there, he gets all the praise and credit and he contributed nothing. The master of the banquet says, hey, mate, you've laid it on at the end. That's weird, but still, I'm going to enjoy this. And he contributed nothing. So the bridegroom gets the credit for what Jesus did, and that's what it is. That's a picture of what it is to become a Christian. Is it all about me or you? No, we bring nothing to the table. Admit that you're empty and hopeless and helpless. Go to the Father confidently taking credit for what Jesus did as saviour. And so you can say, Father, save me because of what Jesus did. Love me and praise me because Jesus is lovely and praiseworthy beyond all imagining. And I see I'm hopeless without him. So put him in my place. When you look at me, see him. And that's what God does. That's how you become a Christian today. And for those who you've seen that, you've embraced it and you've loved that for years, well, maybe on the basis of what we've seen, let's just get a few pointers for prayer from this. Firstly, pray about any little thing. Jesus was willing to use his power, which he could have used for his first miracle to raise the dead or to uh, heal a leper or something like that. But no, he does it like this. What he was doing, if you scratch beneath the surface, he was taking away the embarrassment of a couple of disorganised teenagers. He was wiping the egg off their faces. They were young, they clearly didn't have it all together. Uh, remember where we started? Why didn't Jesus find that leper to heal or a dead person to raise? Maybe it's because he wants to powerfully portray his ministry as incredibly positive. Why is it that we as Christians so sadly get seen as we're the people who say thou shalt not, we're the wowsers, we're the naysayers? It's, it's terrible. And even on marriage and marriage equality, we need to present the powerful positive picture that Jesus portrays of marriage, which is what he's doing here. He's, he's saying that this is a wonderful thing and he wants to make it the best possible thing. He wants to portray his ministry as incredibly positive. He knows that he's going to call us, he's going to call his people there to self-denial, persecution, 
all sorts of other things which may not be easy. But in the end, he comes to bring joy, a feast, as the Lord of your banquet. But there's something else interesting here too. Jesus was willing to use his power and his precious time to do what was apparently to us, we'd say this was a little thing. It doesn't rank comparing with Lazarus being raised from the dead. But this is what he does. It was an embarrassment and he cared about it. He cares even about things you may think are unworthy to bring to him. You think this is too small, I won't bother God with. No, he wants to hear what's on your heart, what's perplexing you, what's troubling you. He counts your tears. In fact, this amount of wine would have been worth a lot of money. He was setting them up for life, this young couple. He cares about that sort of thing. That means go to him for anything. We can ask him about anything because he counts the hairs on your head. And my constant joke, Sandra's sick of it, is it's diminishing daily, so he's got a hard job there. And he counts the tears that you cry. So that's one thing, pray about any little thing. Secondly, pray patiently. Mary tells him the need and waits to see what he'll do. Did she get a pleasant, okay, mum? No. She got a fairly abrupt response with no promise of anything being done about the wine. And sometimes God can seem like that to us. We wonder, has my prayer bounced off the ceiling? What's happening? Well, I suggest you be patient in prayer, like Mary. Does she say to him, how dare you speak to your mother like that? No, that's from soap operas. That, that's not from scripture at all. Don't, she, she remembers the angels. She remembers when he was born. She knows he's got a bigger agenda. So what does she say to the servants when she's basically being brushed off by Jesus, it seems to us? She says, just wait, you bloke, and do whatever he asks. Do whatever he tells you. And what we need to do is tell that to our own hearts when we pray. I'm not sure if I'm getting an answer here. Well, I better just wait and do whatever he puts in front of me, right where I am now. It's pretty good advice, I think. Tell your heart that in prayer. Say the same thing that Mary said to the servants. And then thirdly, we're going to pray about any little thing. Pray patiently and pray with perspective. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're single, if you're one of the single people in that village at that wedding that day, thinking about what Jesus is and who he is and what he's done and what he's going to bring into our lives and what he's done in order to bring you life here today, get that perspective on it. Don't just get so caught up in where you're at right now, in your own little cocoon which is a very fragile thing anyway. But get this bigger perspective. So, for instance, as a single person, don't let getting married throw you. Even if you don't find someone here on earth, a wedding day awaits you to eliminate, to absolutely eliminate all your hurts. His first embrace can undo a thousand lives many times worse than yours ever will be. 
and there's only one bridegroom in the world who will ever be able to, only one spouse who's going to fulfil you and he awaits, he awaits you. So don't be completely overthrown also if your marriage or your family isn't everything that you want it to be or your job just isn't working out or whatever it is. Even if it was everything that you want it to be, even if it was, you've got to realise you can't idolise it. You can't put it up on too much of a pedestal because it'll never be enough. Things on this earth are never enough. My marriage is far better than I deserve and it's still not enough to make me a happy person. It isn't, it's no blame on Sandra. The only spouse who can ever fill the deepest needs of your heart is Jesus. And he's waiting for you if you believe in him and submit to him as Lord of your life. And he's actually willing, in a sense, to pour some wine into your life now, right now, into your heart if you go to him. And you need to know that if you're going to get married and not turn your husband and your family into an idol and destroy them, which is what you'll do, and you need to know that if maybe you're never going to get married and you're going to live a life of singleness without bitterness, you need to know it right now because if you're happily married, you don't think, as long as my marriage is fine, then I'm okay. And then if something goes wrong, if things get tough, then what's going to happen? Are you all going to fall apart? Will your life fall apart? Will your marriage fall apart just because of a tough stretch? Because you've put the marriage in a place that it shouldn't be? You need to see Jesus and have his perspective on life as a result. Because no matter how bad or how good things are, you need to get that big picture perspective. Because Jesus Christ, he stood amidst all the joy of this wedding and it was joyful there in Cana. And what was he doing? He was sipping the coming sorrow so that today we can sit amid all the sorrow that we see around us, sipping the coming joy. That's our joy in Christ. Shall we pray and then we're going to sing. Righteous Father, Father in heaven, we thank you for the joy that you bring, the peace and grace and taste that you are good. May that be fresh and real in our hearts and lives, not just for today, but for eternity. And it's in your Son's name we pray.